Okay. I must express my doubts um, in this way. I wasn't finished putting out all of my religious views and sexual views. And I won't put a time limit on how I'm going to talk about something. I just have to get this out for my own sanity. And I do not mean to disrespect, but letting out these doubts draws me closer to um, treating and seeing people well who don't think live and love like me. And sharing these doubts, it draws me closer to a Christ-likeness that is not excluding of people who are non-Christians. So me expressing these doubts helps me to live at peace with them and to it helps me to be more and more um, curious and more and more inquisitive of the concepts of supernaturalism and miracles and those kind of things so I have a question if you lose consciousness for a period of time like the weekend the two days that Jesus uh, wasn't physically alive and you regain consciousness, my question is, were you never dead during your time of unconsciousness? So when I say the weekend, I'm talking about, again, that not the third day, but those two days. So my question is, if you lose consciousness for a period of time for that weekend, And then you regain consciousness. My question asked for the last time, then were you never dead during a time of unconsciousness? And my other question, my follow-up question is, did does that mean that Jesus did not resurrect? I have questions. I have another question. We must question the story logic of having an all-knowing and all-powerful God who creates faulty humans and then blames them for his own mistakes. Did God make the mistake? Does God create faulty humans? Does God blame people for what they didn't ask for in terms of having a nature that is said to be sinful? So if humans didn't ask for it, isn't that a lack of consent? Isn't that abusive? Isn't Couldn't that make God abusive? Couldn't that make God lack of consent? I have questions.
My question is, why didn't God of the Bible not have mercy on Adam and Eve for their very first sin? Why did God not show any mercy to the firstborn of Egyptians? Why didn't God show any mercy to millions of Jews killed by Adolf Hitler? How come black people did not experience mercy for over 500 years of slavery? When it comes to God's allowance of it, how come when people get smallpox, COVID, and other pandemics, they're not being shown mercy? Uh, when it comes to millions of Black people on the sickle cell genotype, why aren't they shown mercy? How come there is no mercy shown to Uzzah who stumbled whilst carrying the Ark of the Covenant? Why isn't God showing these people mercy? None of these people asked to suffer. None of these people offended God in order to provoke his wrath. These people are innocent. So my question is, why isn't God showing them mercy? And why isn't society showing them mercy either? I have questions. Are we asleep or are we awake? I have questions. Here's my question. God created hell. Christianity wants you to believe that God came down as himself to kill himself to himself to create the loophole to prevent us from going to hell. Is that true? Could it be foolishness? I have questions. If Jesus looked like a dark black skinned black man, would white conservatives still be Christian? Feels like the answer is a resounding no. But to all the white conservatives who are open to that question, would worshiping black Jesus offend your faith? I have questions. Did the stories really happen? This is about the hardest question. We start looking at how the Old Testament came to me, came to be. My question is how come there isn't real strong historical evidence that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others really existed. So it is a question of faith. You either have to believe in the stories because the Old Testament says so, or you believe that these stories were written as legends or as a way to inspire others. But even 
If the stories are not strictly accurate, they do describe ways of life. That we are curious about. So my question is, were uh, were how many Bible stories were written as legends? How many Bible stories were written as a way to inspire others? And how many Bible stories were written because the Old Testament and New Testament says so? And when I say, but even the stories are natural graphic, they describe ways of life that were curious about meaning. Supernaturalism and miracles are curiosities. You want to know validity or lack thereof or what's allegorical, you know. I have questions. In this part of the Old Testament, a worldwide flood occurs, and everyone is drowned except for the people in Noah's Ark. My question is, how come there is no strong evidence for this flood at all? And it seems like one of the meanings is quite clear. If you disobey God's words and expect the worst, I have questions. Why is religion the opiate of the people of so many people in regards to promoting human savagery? I have questions. Another question. Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do from religious conviction place Pascal. I wonder why that is for so many people, but not all people. I have questions. Another question. Why is it true for so many people that those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities according to according to how people behave? And that quote is attributed to Voltaire. Again, I have questions. Why do some people in the religious world feel like if they have 
the younger people, young people stop studying so much that they're going to end up not believing. Why is that the case? I have questions. How come so many religious people secretly and openly pray for some form of harm and misfortune befalling a non-believer to teach them a lesson or come running to God? Why be violent in those ways and just be violent at all? I have questions. Why it says, I am God, I had a son, he is also me. I killed him slash me to show you that I love you. If you don't believe me, love me back, why be tortured for eternity? Why is that? I have questions. Why is there, quote-unquote, a stairway to heaven or highway to hell? We split ways here. (laughs) I have questions. I was just laughing out of nervousness, like, wow. I I still have questions. Um, Why is it easy to be misogynistic once you read scripture? I, I, I have questions. When it comes to the concept of original sin, here are, here's a script that really frames my questions. Why are you arresting me? I'm a law-abiding citizen. Your great, 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 great grandfather was a serial killer. You inherited his crimes, now you must pay. Original sin makes a lot of sense. Apparently, we are automatically sinners because two people ate an apple. This is, and it's like, why is that? That feels so senseless to me, and it feels troubling to me. It feels like folly to me. God punishing us infinitely for finite crimes? In this case, spiritual crimes? I don't understand. He has prepared hell for folks who don't believe because two people eat apples. I don't understand. Feels like nonsensical to me. I have questions. And here's proof that people weren't the first beings on earth. This is the United States government's official website. So you know, without a shadow of doubt, I'm not making anything up. Question, did people and dinosaurs live at the same time? No, after the dinosaurs died out, nearly 65 million years passed before people appeared on earth. However, small mammals, including shrew-sized primates, were alive at the time of the dinosaurs. Some scientists who study dinosaurs, vertebrate, Paleontologists now think that birds are direct descendants of one line of carnivorous dinosaurs. 
but some consider that they, in fact, represent modern living dinosaurs. This theory remains of discussion shows that there is still much we don't know about dinosaurs. So, basically, the Adam and Eve story has been debunked because... If you don't, if they don't have any proof that Adam and Eve were first, and they don't mention dinosaurs in the Bible, and they talk about seven day periods, I'm like, no science says you know the universe is billions of years old and that clearly it couldn't be all seven days it took years for each type of being to be around It's amazing how people say animals and everything were first, but the people named them. How come the animals couldn't name themselves? Why did people have to name animals that named themselves? And as for plants, you know, um, I have a question. Why isn't environmentalism encouraged in church even though nature and what's said in Genesis have something to do with each other because of what the Bible writers did in terms of making them have something to do with each other. I have questions. And the Bible doesn't even mention that dinosaurs appeared before people. So Adam and Eve's story is clearly debunked. Clearly because the Bible should have put that dinosaurs were before people. That way, the Bible can have that kind of credibility, but it doesn't. I have questions. I doubt out loud. I do. And it's amazing how a lot of religious people fail to mention the existence of dinosaurs. It's not talked about. They do. They say, well, Adam named them. They just weren't called dinosaurs. I'm like, but if you knew that they're going to be called dinosaurs later, just call them dinosaurs to begin with. Like, if you can call animals what they are, and they turn out to have those names later, you couldn't do that with dinosaurs. That means that it didn't happen. And why not mention that the first human remains are found in Africa? Why not put that in the Bible? It, it, this science, scientists have said that the first human remains were in Africa. So just put that. Instead of Garden Eden, just say Africa. Or say Garden of Eden within Africa. Uh, uh, it's frustrating for me. So I had to get all those doubts out so I can move forward with my life. Now, 
let's talk about this. This is the life and times of Bruce Corinthian, one man journey from eternity to here. This is January 8, 2016. How should churches handle allegations of abuse? How should churches handle allegations of abuse? I ask again. Let me state right up front that I do not think churches shouldn't handle, quote unquote, handle anything. Again, let me state right up front that I do not think churches shouldn't, quote unquote, handle anything. This is what gets churches, pastors, and church leaders into trouble to start with. Instead of immediately doing the right thing when someone makes an allegation of abuse, pastors and church members often consult with the pastor, consult with the deacons or some other church board, call a denominational leader, act what they should do, consult with a few church members to chart a course of action, pray about it, seek out counsel from other pastors, wait to see if the quote-unquote problem goes away, interrogate the individual or the person making the allegation, investigate the quote-unquote character of the person making the allegation. All these things are the wrong things to do. Far too often, the church or pastor is more concerned about protecting the church's testimony in the community than protecting the person who might have been abused. As a result, often appears to the community that the church is more interested in its own reputation than ending in prosecuting any abuse that might be going on. In most states, pastors and church leaders are required by law to report suspected abuse. It is not up to the church for pastors to decide the allegation is valid. That's what the police, prosecutor, and child protective services are for. They will investigate and act accordingly. Even in cases where the abuse took place years before, once a church or a pastor has knowledge of the allegation, both have a moral and ethical responsibility to report it. A failure to do so can, in many states, leave the church or pastor criminally liable. And I wish more prosecutors would charge and prosecute pastors and church leaders for failing to report. Once an allegation has become common knowledge, it is in the church's best interest to make a public statement about the allegation. Yes, it is up to the police and the courts to determine guilt, but the church can state exactly what has been done in response to the allegation. They can further state what they will do to make sure that abuse does not happen in the future. It is not, it is not enough to just tell the church to board or write a generic letter to church members. I know of one church that has had several problems with sexual abuse in their bus ministry. The pastor of the church has never fully disclosed to the church the complete details of what happened. Outside of several news stories, the public has no idea about what the church did or didn't do in response to the abuse. The pastor says to the church members, trust me, and the pastor says to the world, it is none of your business. Churches like this want people to come to their church and they want people to trust them. However, the sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church, the Evangelical Church, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist, IFB Church, and countless unaffiliated churches are poignant and reminded that no one should by default trust a church or a pastor. I, for one, will not let my children or grandchildren out of my sight while attending church. I know too much and I've heard too many stories. If this makes me untrusting, cynical, or jaded, so be it. Better to be this way than naively turn people I love over to someone I don't really know in the hope that they are what they say they are. Some churches give the illusion that their place of worship is safe. They tell new families. We do criminal background checks on every worker in the church. 
Well, this is certainly a good idea. A one-time background check accomplishes what? If the person has never been arrested or convicted of a crime, their background check would come back clean. Background checks are little more than a band-aid over a festering sore. I know of one pastor who refuses to do background checks. His rationale for refusing to do them? After a person is saved, past sins are quote-unquote under the blood. The person, no matter what they may have done in the past, is completely forgiven by God. After all, God forgave Paul, the murderer, and David, the adulterer slash murderer, right? This kind of naive thinking is why churches are havens for predators. It is not hard to stand before a congregation and give a wonderful testimony of God's saving grace, yet be a predator. It is quite easy to learn religious lingo. My family and I could dress up this Sunday, go to church, and every one of us would likely be considered a wonderful Christian. We know the talk, the walk, the songs. We know how to do evangelical. Yet in real life, we are atheists, agnostics, Catholics, and Buddhists. Most of us are, shudder to think of it, Democrats. Anyone who has spent any time at all in church can easily fake it. But Bruce, the Holy Spirit will let the church know they aren't real Christians. Do you really want to trust the welfare of the church, children, and teenagers to the Holy Spirit? Are you really saying that a Christian could not be a pedophile, abuser, or predator? I am often asked about how I handled abuse allegations when I was a pastor. Simple. I reported them each and every time. When I heard of an allegation of abuse, even if it was a second-hand report, I immediately called Children's Services. Years ago, we had a couple with a baby living in our church basement. They had been homeless. One day, I came into the basement, and the baby was screaming uncontrollably. I went to check on the child, and I asked the mother why the child was screaming. She told me she didn't know. I suggested she should take care of the child. Her reply... When she was done eating, she would get around to it. This, along with several other things I had noticed, was enough for me. I called Children's Service, and they came out the next day to investigate. The couple was told that any further complaints would result in them losing the child. They knew I had reported them, and they were furious. Me? I couldn't have cared less about what they thought. It was the baby who mattered. We operated a bus ministry for many years. There were several instances where abuse was suspected, and I reported it. In one case, an older woman was throwing booze and sex parties for church teens. When I find out about it, I told their parents and reported the woman. It was a no-brainer, even if every boy in the church thought the parties were wonderful. Years ago, well, everything is years ago now, I helped my father-in-law start a church. One day, the infant of one of our church families died suddenly. It was ruled as Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, SIDS, S-I-D-S. Weeks after the death, the grieving father came to my father-in-law and confessed that he had shaken the baby to death. My father-in-law came to me and asked what he should do since the man told him this in confidence. I told him he had to report it to the police. He did, and the man went to prison. When I was counseling people, I made it clear that if they were going to confess to abuse or a felony, 
I was obligated to report it. I have never believed that what is said in confidence must always remain so. When a young man confessed to me that he had murdered his girlfriend, I encouraged him to turn himself in and then I let the police know what he had told me. I later gave a sworn affidavit in the case. Fortunately, the man pleaded guilty and I did not have to testify. Granted, they, they, these are exceptional circumstances. The people I passed knew that they could trust me with their secrets. As long as their secrets didn't involve abuse or a felony, the secrets were safe with me. People often have a need to unburden themselves with past actions and quote-unquote sins, and they do so by talking to a pastor or a priest or a good friend. When people write me and tell me their stories, I always let them know that their correspondence with me will be kept confidential. However, if they confess to murdering their spouse or molesting a child, I will report it immediately. This does not make me a saint. However, when it comes to dealing with abuse and helping those who have been abused, I'm always on the side of the abuse. My mother was sexually abused as a child by her father, raped by a brother-in-law, and sexually molested by a Christian psychiatrist, and they all got away with it. I have a dear family member who was sexually abused by her IFB, Independent Fundamentalist Baptist father. Her abuser has been in prison for over 20 years. Add to this the horror stories I heard while counseling church members and the emails I now receive from people who have been abused. I hope you'll forgive me if I am passionate about this issue. As far as I'm concerned, it's quite simple for churches or pastors when it comes to how to handle allegations of abuse. Report it immediately, then take the necessary steps to make sure that abuse does not happen in the future. It is tragic that some churches are magnets for sexual predators. In these churches, it seems that every few years a church member, pastor, deacon, youth pastor, bus worker, or Sunday school teacher is being accused of abuse. Perhaps churches such as these should be forced to have the equivalent of what we have here in Ohio for drunk drivers. Some judges require people convicted of DUI, driving under the influence, to get yellow license plates. Perhaps repeat offender churches need some sort of yellow license plates that warns the public that the church has been a haven for abusers or predators. I would say there's nothing to forgive Bruce for because passion, being passionate about taking a stand against predatory behavior is not sinful in and of itself. And I would say that churches really need to um, take mental health seriously. Uh, if you can have events for people where y'all talk about racism, why not have events for people where you can bring in this group called RAIN? RAIN is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Why not bring in organizations that prevent and fight uh, abuse and violence and trauma. Um, I never understood why only have groups of people that are just religious. Or if you invite non-Christians, there are people of all their religions. It shouldn't matter if the organization is secular. It shouldn't matter 
if the organization is not Christian? Do they have a heart to stop assault, to stop bullying, to stop harassment? Then them not being a faith doesn't matter. You can evangelize them at another time. The important thing is you need that you know, they need to start having entities that actually can come to church and speak to the congregation about the issues that the pastor knows that many of the congregation are facing. So whatever issue it is, it could be miscarriage, it could be infidelity, it could be anything. Poverty. Bring each organization that deals with each of the issues that the congregation is facing. And why not create, why, I don't understand how come churches won't create a relationship with the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association. I, I, I don't understand that either. Why not create relationships with trained professionals train advocates and trained activists and trained lobbyists that don't have the whole we're only going to lobby for religious conservatives I'm talking about lobbying for the issues that is decimating a congregation you know those like family violence is decimating the congregation why not have lobbyists and organizations that have the proper credentials to show that they're qualified to um, go to the powers that be and say, hey, we actually fight this all the time. That made sense to me. Why wait to take mental health seriously now once COVID came, y'all should have done that before. You should have addressed that therapy is not of the devil, which I was saying that before COVID. And now a lot of y'all um, wanted to take mental health seriously because of the world. You don't need the world's permission to do God's will. You don't need the pastor's permission to do that. You don't need anybody's permission to do God's will. You already have it. Just get it done. And um, it's kind of like the Lifetime series. Why only suddenly do one sermon about R. Kelly? One, he has been talked about for years. Two, a lot of you knew what he was doing, but you still welcomed me in church anyway. And three, so Lifetime is providing justice to sexual abuse victims. When I the church can tell me Lifetime is better at providing sexual, providing just sexual abuse victims than the church can tell me Lifetime is godly to sexual abuse victims in terms of justice than the church is. 
And only talking about it one time is not enough. That's not taking a stand. Taking a stand means you are willing to lose money every time you get an opportunity to address it. Every time you get an opportunity to fight it and to, you know, fight sexual abuse governmentally, church-wise, every area of life. You are willing to infuriate the milk and you are willing to have more meat in your church. But but the thing about churches, what a lot of people are guilty of, they don't talk about. They're afraid to preach against themselves. They're afraid to preach against the congregation and the congregation is doing it too. They're afraid to preach against the pulpit because the pulpits are afraid to preach against themselves too. Pulpits congregations are afraid to preach against each other and they're afraid to preach against themselves. Church leadership is afraid to preach against itself and other people in church leadership. And they're afraid to preach against pulpits and congregations because all three are in cahoots with each other. It's actually abuse. Now I'm going to go to another article, meetmindful.com. In dating relationships, what you need to be a good lover. Tracy Dunblazer. There are five essential things you need to do to be a good lover. That's it. Check out the simple list to take your intimacy to new and magic places. So this is Tracy's words. I asked my boyfriend back in the other days, I'm a good lover. I was about 19. I didn't want to do things, quote unquote, wrong. His response surprised me. He said, if I'm going to be a good lover, I should want to have sex. That being with someone who actually wants sex changes the mental and emotional connection. That caught me off guard. I expected that there was some sort of action or secret to being a good lover. Who would have thought it was so simple? But then I thought about it. What What is it that makes a person want to connect with another mentally and emotionally? Love. Really? Love makes you a better lover? It's true that for many folks, sex is about power and control. If you want to have really good sex, it's about the expression of love. So in the spirit of love, here are the four things to focus on to be a good lover. Love your body. 1% of Americans have body dysmorphic disorder. The rest of us may have a plethora of issues minor to major in our self-perception based on varying circumstances and hormonal cycles. Learning to love your body is a skill that takes honest work. The most loving thing you can do for your sexual partner is to be willing to work through any obstacles you have about the way you look and feel about yourself. Feeling comfortable with exactly how you are in this moment gives you a freedom in your loving sexual expression. I take it a step further. Don't just love your own body love your partner's bodies too. Love your heart. Being open hearted in our society is for some akin with being vulnerable to manipulation, but in fact, we're only vulnerable to the information we don't have or don't want to have. On the low end, open heartedness is trusting yourself. On the high end, open heartedness is bringing the experience of unconditionally I'm sorry, on the low end, open heartness is trusting yourself. On the high end, open heartness is bringing the experience of unconditionality into your sexual experience. This mean, That means a complete openness to your partner, their needs, in addition to the ability to know and express your needs to your partner. Okay, don't, I take it a step further. Don't just love your heart, love your partner's hearts too. 
love your partner. Loving yourself, your partner doesn't necessarily mean to be in love with them. It means you're willing to be generous with your truth, honesty, and kindness, negotiate a relationship that works for both of you. From a fully accountable position, we let people treat us how they do. Setting a boundary the first time a partner expresses a behavior that we're not interested in is the key. Rarely does bad behavior just present itself all at once. If it did, that would be much easier to deal with. Unloving behavior happens in increments over time. For example, it's easy to allow yourself to be called a name in anger because your partner had a bad day that had nothing to do with you. Ultimately, over time, you're teaching your partner there are times when it's okay to treat you poorly. Just saying, hey, I know you've had a bad day, but don't call me names, that's unacceptable, can change the course of your entire relationship. Expressing a deliberate boundary in a peaceful voice is enough to change the direction positively, especially when you're just getting to know someone. I take it a step further. Um, don't just love your partner. Love your partnership too. Love the experience. Being present in your sexual relationship requires courage. When you're present, you're connecting and open to receiving loving energy. As you know, a natural response to being uncomfortable is contraction if you pull back emotionally or without sexual expression. Opening to someone's loving energy expands and moves you on every level, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. Letting yourself receive your partner on all levels creates an unforgettable experience. I take it a step further. Don't just love the experiences you have, love the experiences that your partner has. And make sure the experiences are both lovable to you all involved with your sexual partners. Okay, love yourself. Of course, we'd be remiss to present an article on loving and being a good lover without mentioning the most important aspect of love. When you love yourself and meet your own needs, you allow yourself to show authentic interest in your partner, who they are, what they like, their needs, and your sexual expression with them. The ability to love someone else is really loving yourself. So don't just love yourself. Don't don't just love yourself. Make sure your partner loves you too. And you can apply all of these um, five essential things you need to to do to be a good lover to group sex too, not just two people sex. Okay, and so these are the things that I apply in my personal life, and these are things I'm going to apply in my future adult entertainment career, and these are things I'm going to apply in my future adult businesses industry um, entities as well. So with that being said, April 7th is when I will be discussing religion and sex. I'm going to take my one month break starting right about now. But I have to say this. So I can officially start my one month break of religion and sex. I am secular because I am not having any connection with religion.
And one more thing. I am secular because I have an interest in Christ's likeness that has everyone belonging. Actually, I have several more things. My view of church is that I, I like, I, I do secular church, right? It means that we don't, we don't have to dress up. We don't keep our language clean. And whatever taboos we want to have a conversation about, we do. If we want to cry, we do. And we don't all have to have the same ways of thinking, living, and loving. You can truly come as you truly are. We learn and grow from each other. And there's no such thing as a monolith. There's no fake smiles. You're not allowed to be a phony. You're not allowed to lie. And our version of churches being together, whether that's inside or outside, in terms of an establishment, or it could be out and about in a park somewhere. So that's what secular church means for me. We don't police each other's private lives, but we do emphasize doing harm principle in however ways you choose to live out your private life.